Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the Band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to... You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 160 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. I am so excited about this week's guest, Marty O'Brien, who's a Rhode Island-born bass player that has had an unbelievable career, decades filled with great rock and roll stories. Marty is currently the bass player in Daughtry, and he and I reconnected in Vegas earlier this year. And as we started swapping stories about the late 90s, I was like, Marty, you have got to come on my podcast. Now, I've already had Chris Daughtry on the show a couple of times, but Marty and I go way back. Back to the days of Kilgore, the Rhode Island band that broke in the mid to late 90s. Marty O'Brien has played bass for everybody from Tommy Lee to Lita Ford to Disturbed and Static X and then some. He was on the OzFest multiple times and has recorded with everyone from Chris Cornell to Celine Dion and Kelly Clarkson. Marty's been a touring bass player and a session player, and he checked in with me recently from Los Angeles, where he lives now, taking a little bit of vacation time off the road. And we got caught up about how we met and all of the different stories that have happened over the last two plus decades of both of our careers. If you're a bass player or a fan of rock music, you are going to love this episode. Talking stories about everyone from Pantera to Extreme, Marty O'Brien has seen and done it all, and I'm so happy to call him a friend. So allow me to introduce you to Marty O'Brien. What's up, Marty? What's going on over there on the East Coast? Oh my God, it's so good to see you. You too. You don't get to say East Coast. You're an East Coast guy. You may live in the West Coast, but you're an East Coast guy. I am very much an East Coast guy, but I'm saying, how's it going over there on the East Coast? I do miss it. it's It's not bad. The weather, you know how it is. It's weird. Yeah, it's weird out here. Like, usually it's sunny every day. And it's just been gray and gloomy for a month. It's the weirdest thing. Did you move to Seattle, West Coast? Which part of the West Coast? (laughs) It's been like that a month. And everybody's everybody's talking about it, too. They're like, what's with this? This is weird. How do you... People will come visit for a week, and and they're just like, what's going on with the weather? Yeah, it's crazy. Whenever I have to go to L.A. for work, which isn't all that often, but every once in a while, the music business kind of has... New York, Nashville, and L.A. is kind of the hubs. Um, yeah. I can't handle it for, like, more than, like, five or six days. Because I'm just such LA. a... Um, yeah, I'm such a masshole. 
that yeah. like there are just things on the West Coast that I can't wrap <laughs> my brain around. When did you move to L.A. and how was that transition? Because it couldn't have been easy. It was. Everybody thought I talked funny as soon as I got it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, what happened was in uh, in 1998, I was in the band called Kilgore, which you knew from back in the day. Yeah. And uh, and when I joined the band, they they had just been chosen to go on the Ozfest. So this was like a huge thing, like local band is about to go on the Ozfest. And I wasn't in the band at the time. And uh, even I remember the feeling at the time that was like, like what these kids from Rhode Island are opening for Aussie. Like, it was like, what are you talking about? Like it was, it was a huge buzz in the city. And uh, it turns out just a couple weeks before they left for the Ozfest, they needed to swap out their bass player. So they asked me to join uh, just like two weeks before the Ozfest. So that was like, talk about transition. That was, I went from just playing in local bands uh to all of a sudden like we're opening for megadeth and tool and ozzy every day around it was it was talk about transition that was just like what is happening but the the move to la was about a uh, a year and a half uh or two years after that because the singer for kilgore had left at the time and uh and the record the kilgore's record label was based out of la they were it was a giant records part of warner brothers and the uh, management was out in la and they were all urging us, like, you guys need to move out here. Find a singer out here. We'll keep the ball rolling. It'll all be going good. And uh, so the three of us, uh, as a band, moved out to L.A. to find a new singer. And uh, But I was only out. We were only out here for two weeks. And I suddenly got the invite to, uh, to uh, audition for Tommy Lee's band at the time, Methods of Mayhem. So... Luckily, with the blessing of the other guys, because I, I mean, I got the I got the email from my buddy. He was the uh, uh, one of the, his buddy was the guy setting up the auditions. And he sends me this email and he says, hey, uh, Tommy Lee's audition bass players for this uh, Methods of Mayhem band. They're about to do the Ozfest. And, and the email said, how soon can you be in L.A.? And I was like, I'm, I'm actually here. I just moved here like oh, two weeks ago. So that's how that happened. Um and that's how that's how I got out to L.A. was, was with Kilgore. But uh, but the, my, the first thought I got when I asked to audition for Tommy Lee was like, oh, no, I like I just moved here with my band, you know, like. And I, I remember I walked into the other room and the drummer, Bill, he's a massive Tommy Lee fan, obviously. And, and it's funny is the week before I got the audition, he had just seen this Methods of Mayhem band at a TV show taping. We just got to L.A. and all we were going to all these events and crazy stuff. And uh so he was on this buzz of like, I can't believe I saw Tommy Lee filming this thing. His new band is crazy. And so I go in the other room and I'm like, uh, you won't believe this email I got. I just got asked to audition for to Tommy Lee's band, Methods of Mayhem. And I'm thinking the guys are going to be like, oh, man, we just moved here. Like, you're going to go audition for other people. And the thought immediately, they just looked at me and they were like, you have to do it. You have to do it. Like, like super excited. And they urged me to do it. So uh anyway i did that and and that's how uh so the kilgore was what brought us out here um and then the ball started rolling with all uh other gigs for me once i got here so, yeah but uh, transition wise yeah I, it was it was definitely uh <laughs> everybody thought i talked funny it was great yeah there there's just a difference in like mentality and and just w the way our, we work and the way oh yeah <laughs> 
Like I heard this. You tell me because you're an East Coast guy. You tell me if this is yeah. if this is accurate. I heard someone say this. I think it was on TikTok that the difference between East Coasters and West Coasters is the difference between being nice and kind. So if you, the example they gave was that if you got a flat tire and you were on the side (laughs) of the highway, that a West Coaster would pull over and be like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And they would be nice about it. And then they would leave you on the side of the highway. (laughs) But an East Coaster would pull over and go, the fuck you do? Oh, you got a flat tire? What are you, an idiot? Get out of the way. And they would change it for you. So they wouldn't be nice, but they would be kind. Is that accurate now that you've lived on both coasts? You know, what's funny is is, uh, if I I visit back East and I see some of my buddies or I'm I'm on the West Coast and some East Coast guys come over and – there's always a funny moment where somebody, you know, you'll say something or do something and somebody will just be like, yeah, go fuck yourself, whatever, you know? And, uh, and then at first you're like, Whoa. And then you go, then you realize like, Oh, they're my East coast buddies where they can just tell you to go fuck yourself. And then like, Hey, so you want to want to go get something to eat right after And it's an endearing go fuck yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's with love. Yeah. But they'll mean it be like, you know, there's something you said, like upset them and they don't agree. And they'll be like, you know, and so there's there's a truth to that for sure, yeah. They mean well. I'm trying to remember cuz you're one of those people that I've known for so long that I yeah. that I can't remember how long I've actually known you. Was it with Kilgore that I met you? Um, I can't remember if I met you during Kilgore, but I have a Mistress Carrie story. I'm I've told sure this story to you people do. before. So, um, just a like a little recap of how this led into that was, you know, I was I played for Kilgore we moved to LA. As soon as we got here, I got the gig with Tommy Lee. And, uh, and I had to learn those songs in just a few days. And the next thing you know, I'm on the Ozfest. And so that was kind of like the buzz thing going on. Like on the Ozfest, all the guys were like, I'd meet people in other bands and they'd be like, Oh, so you're the guy that had to learn the songs in just a few days. Huh? I go, yeah, it was crazy. Like, can you, can you come down tomorrow for an audition? You know? So it was kind of known that I was the guy that learned the songs quickly. So um, on that Ozfest tour was um, Disturbed was on the second stage, on their touring their first album, and uh, and I'd also done some festival shows with Static X, so I met those guys. Right, so um, during that year, I'm friends with all these bands in the Ozfest, and then the Tommy Lee tour ends, and then in 2001, Tommy Lee was like working on a new record, and there's nothing going on. And the bass player for Disturbed, uh, Fuzz, he broke his ankle and he calls me one day. Now they're, you know, that first album is blowing up. They're just like doing huge. And he calls me and he goes, uh, hey, Marty, uh, so I hear you learn those Tommy Lee songs pretty quickly. You think you could uh, go with the boys to Europe and fill in for me? <laughs> I was like, what? Uh, yeah. So, uh, so it, you know. At the drop of a hat, I was off to Chicago to jump on a plane with the Disturbed guys, and and we went to Europe and did uh, a European tour opening for Marilyn Manson and all that. And then six months after that, the bass player for Static X, my buddy Tony, he falls off his motorcycle and and fractures his collarbone. And what's weird is he was coming to a to see me play a gig. I I was doing like this jam band kind of thing with guys from like Cypress Hill and Jane's Addiction and stuff. And he came to the gig. He fell and he broke his collarbone. So Wayne Static calls me and says, "Hey, uh, so 
is it true you learned all those uh, Methods Mayhem songs really quickly and filled in within days? Uh, yeah, he goes, uh, you want to uh, come with us uh, to do this tour? So this is where I met you, or at least we had our, our first, like, uh, in-depth conversation, you know? And um, and so that tour I did with Static X filling in was Pantera's last tour, that, that Reinventing the Steel tour, you know? And uh, now the first time we met was on OzFest, and we're in the back of the Great Woods uh, amphitheater there and you're interviewing Tommy Lee and he, Tommy's like, let's, let's all do it together. You know? So like his band and, uh, and somehow you knew that I was like the local kid that was from Kilgore and was now in, and, and I'll never forget. You said, so wow. You, so you got, you got a local guy here in your band and uh, Tommy, what's that like? Marty's Marty's from the area. And this wasn't true, but Tommy goes, I met Marty's mom today and she looked me right in the eyes and said, I've seen your video <laughs> referring to the, uh, you know, Oh, I know the, the video you're referring to. Pamela. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody burst out laughing and that was live on WAF. Yeah. And then, uh, so like I said, I did that gig and then the disturbed and static X gigs were because people broke bones and I had to step in and do the tour last minute. So that, that, tour with static x it was slayer and pantera that reinventing the steel tour and i was at the uh we were playing the worcester centrum and i and yeah you were out back like by the loading docks and the trucks and all that and you go mario brian oh so you're here playing with static x let's let's do a quick interview on the street now er, by this time this is my second gig that i'm now filling in for somebody with broken bones and people were throwing jokes around like what's going on with this like everywhere you go there's like are you chasing ambulances or whatever <laughs> now at the time jason newstead had just quit metallica you know and even i was like mm, that'd be a good gig for me you know and you got you caught me on the street outside the centrum and you were like marty o'brien local kid playing the worcester centrum what is this that's crazy and you said and i tell people the story they all laugh and you said okay so uh, six months ago, you filled in for Disturb because the bass player broke his, uh, his his ankle. So now you're playing for Static X because the bass player broke his collarbone. And you said, so what we all are knowing here, what we're wondering is, what have you done to Jason Newstead? <laughs> <laughs> are you putting hit? You said, are you putting hits out on bass players? Because what's going on? Yeah. And you didn't. Jason Newstead's fine. I did fine. not, no. Yeah, he was fine. He just, I guess he left on his own or, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But I was trying to get that gig, too. That was a... Well, that was why when I saw you in Vegas playing with Daughtry, that I was like, I got to get you... Just recently. Yeah, it was just recently. You and I, like, finally got to kind of reconnect in person other than, like, social media posts and stuff. Because I'm so used to interviewing people that are in bands, especially that have been in bands for a long time, or it's their band. And you have this fascinating journeyman bass player story where not only are you a local (laughs) New England guy, but you've literally played with everybody. And I was like, Marty, I got to get you on the podcast because I want to go through the whole timeline of your career because you've literally played with everybody. It's like, you're that guy, broken bone, call Marty. Yeah, yeah. Bass players got the flu, call Marty. Like, yeah. <laughs> you caught your bass player banging your wife, call Marty. Like, Marty's That's the guy. Right. I'll step in. 
who needs it it's you know what's funny is uh my whole career it's always been like it always seemed that the bigger the band was that i played for the the shorter the tour was it was like if i thought it was going to be like and all, all my buddies were like longtime band members and in, in bands and they would they would record an album and they would go on tour for two years supporting that record and they'd be on tour and i'd be like I joined Tommy Lee's band and we're on tour for like six months, hoping it's going to be two years. And then the next single doesn't do so well. And then, then the tour support is pulled and then there's no more touring. And then like, you know, then there's a static X gig and then disturb gig and every band, it was always like a, maybe I'd play with them for like a year. And it wasn't that I just left. It was just the job. They needed me for that time. And then, and then, uh, I would just move on. What I really always wanted was to be, I, w- I wanted to be in a band, that long-term 20-year band guy on all the records and all that. And I always felt like, you know, the grass is always greener. I always felt like, oh man, if I could just find like a, a band, you know, like all these different gigs are great. But now that I'm older and I look back and I almost think like, you know, thank God they all ended because I would rather have the facets of all the different artists and all the different bands then just, um, you know, because I see some of my buddies that, and, I, and I think about it like, wow, like even though I always wanted to be in a band the whole time, to look back and be like, this is the only band I played with would be like, oh, no, I'd, ra- I'd rather have like that giant long list. It's like and getting married the, the, as a virgin. This is the only girl I'm ever going to get to bang yeah. for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. And actually what what I'm what I'm most proud of of all of it is the diversity, because like. And, you know, sometimes I see the list of people that I've played for because it's both recording sessions as well as live bands. And I love when they skip each other and, and they look kind of because it'll say Disturbed, Celine Dion, uh, Static X, Kelly Clarkson, you know, like it's all like uh, all over the place. And because usually uh, in the recording session world, if if you're, you know, if you're pegged as like some metal player, there's no chance in hell you're going to play on a on a Kelly Clarkson record or something like that. Just, just because the producers, they just like, you know, and so I'm, I'm, that's what I'm most proud of is like, uh, that I wasn't kind of pegged that I was just kind of known to come in and do whatever was needed, you know? So that's why I'm on kind of the, the random pop albums as well as the metal stuff, you know, that's what I'm most proud of. So that's why I've been all over the map. (laughs) Well, I want to, I want to go back to the beginning of your, musical career and and go yep. back to to the beginning because there's a lot of career to like dig through i'm like an archaeologist right now i got my shovel so All are right. you originally from rhode island from rhode island grew up in Pawtucket. in the bucket and, uh, i grew up in the bucket used to listen to uh uh, all the local radio stations i worked some jobs and just put the headphones on and worked the regular gigs and uh, but I always played in local bands, you know, like there were a core group of guys that I played with and the band name changed a few times, but it was always like the same core guys and get a different singer. So I always tried to like always trying to do it, you know, and uh, did you and start crazy... playing guitar first or no, it was always, always bass. Yeah. Getty Lee had a really funny quote. He said, nobody ever starts playing the bass. They always play guitar and then they join a band and they need a bass player. And then you get chosen to be the yeah. bass player. Nope. I always felt, I fell in love with the frequency of it. Like the, the low end, the fact that you could feel it in you. It hit me right away. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Guitars and the, everything else is kind of all up here. 
what the bass comes in and you like, I was just like fascinated that it was like, you know, felt, you know? And, uh, so yeah, I grew up in, in Rhode Island and here's the, here's the crazy story. I don't think I've ever told this one before is that, um, at one point after playing in local bands for like eight years and just playing in front of like 40 bands, I mean, playing in front of like 40 of your friends, you know, nothing, nothing ever really grew in anything big. I, uh, I had this, this career switch in my head where I just wanted to tackle uh, graphic design and I was going to go back to school for graphic design and I had actually quit my local band and I was just like, you know, uh, I'm just done. I'm going to go to school for this graphic design and I quit my band after years and all my friends were like, you, you just quit. You're not going to play. And, uh, and everybody couldn't believe me, but I was actually truly happy for the first time in my life. And instead of having uh, this like, this dream that was like unreachable of music. I finally had this idea of like, hold on, I can study graphic design and just and get into that world. And I actually was already doing it on the computer and already loved it. And wouldn't you know it, as soon as I made that choice, right? So Kilgore was a local band that these guys were, they were a few years younger than me. So they weren't part of our exact scene. I was more in like the more, played more metal bands that kind of sounded more like Queen Drake and stuff like that, you know? And the, these Kilgore guys were kind of more like the hardcore scene and, and, uh, and, but I, we go see this band and the shows would be packed. And I mean, a thousand kids crawling on each other, singing every word. And even me and my friends were like, what is this? Like, I mean, it, you felt like you were at a national, a national act show. Like there was, I remember there were security guards stopping people from trying to go backstage. And I was like, this is like a local band. And you're talking about like mid nineties, right? Yeah. Mid nineties, like 90 was just insane then, especially in New England. 96, 97. And, uh, and then 98 rolls around. I'll never forget getting that call. Like, did you hear like Kilgore is on the Ozfest? I was like, we were like, what? Like, and I actually said, like, the only band to come out of Rhode Island is John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, like, 20 <laughs> years ago. Like, what is happening right now? So, I mean, I'm just being like, that is insane. So, uh, And OzFest, for anybody that may not have been old enough to go, right? It just, was huge. OzFest was, if you were a new band and you yeah. got picked to be on the second stage, I mean... You were, was, you were talking about Disturbed, Slipknot. Like, yeah. it was this launching pad for bands yeah. that if you could get on the OzFest, it was like the rest of your life was already planned out. You yeah. were destined to be a rock star. And prime, there was a track e- record to prove it. Prime example, every day on the OzFest, Kilgore, Every day before us was System of a Down, and every day after us was Incubus. <laughs> so that that lets you know. And they were System of a Down was in a beat up uh, like RV, and Incubus was in an old like an old seventies looking tour bus that we used to call the Journey Bus because it looked like the the old tour buses in the in the uh, Separate Ways video. <laughs> and so uh, so yeah, so they were picked on the Ozfest, and now I've made my decision that like I'm just gonna I'm gonna follow this graphic design path in my life. And I'm, I'm sick of unloading gear up in Boston at three in the morning, lifting my base <laughs> cabs into the back of my truck and having to be at work at like 7am. Like I was actually done. I was like, Ugh. and, uh, and I'll never forget. I, I went out to a club in Providence and I hadn't, I hadn't been out 
in a few months because I kind of was removed from the music scene. And the guitar player for Kilgore walks in and it was in this club when there was only like four people in the whole place playing pool. And he walks in and he just has this look on his face. And I didn't realize why he suddenly looked at me with his eyes open. And the, the fact was, they were looking for me. They wanted to ask me to join the band. They had seen me play in other bands, but nobody had my number and they didn't know where to find me. So they just went to any clubs that they might have seen me at. That and he was story shocked to see is I was... so far yeah. from the realm of comprehension for people in this day and age. Yeah, exactly. That there was, you didn't have a cell phone. There was, you didn't yeah. have email. People did not, there was no social media. People did not get a yeah. hold of you. This was 98. So he walks in with this weird look like, whoa. And he, and this is a guy, you know, he was playing in Kilgore at the time. So anytime I would see him, he would just be like, oh, hey, bro, how are you? Like, he knew who I was, but we never have chats. And he walked right up to me and he's like, hey, yeah, so who are you, uh, right away, he got right to it. So who are you playing with now? I said, I actually, actually quit my band. You know, I kind of just laying low for a bit, nothing going on. He's like, really, uh, could I get your number or we're going to talk about something? I was like, sure. And then uh, he left right away. And then it suddenly hit me like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, they're doing the OzFest. Like, what does this mean? And uh, so I talked to them the next day and they said, hey, you, you want to come down and jam with us? So I learned two of their songs. And the next day I went down and just played. I played two songs. So I told you I quit. I'd quit my bands. I was done. You know, I play two songs with them and they just look at each other like, oh, OK. And they go, Let, let's go outside and talk. Like, all right. So we go outside and, and talk and they go. Here's the deal. They go, we're leaving in like, I think it was something like 10 days for the OzFest. And they go, we are swapping bass players. We need a new guy and we want you to come with us. And I was like, and I was like, all right, let's go. And they said, well, well, wait a minute. Like we, we heard you have a job and like, we noticed you drive that nice truck. I'm sure you have a payment. You know, we don't make a lot of money. We just want you to think about it. You know? And I was like, let's go. And they go, that's it. Let's go. I said, let's go. <laughs> and 10 days later, I'm in a van heading out to do uh, this. Uh, I mean, we did like a week of shows leading out to the West Coast. Then we started on the OzFest. But, and here's the funny thing is um, I wasn't familiar. I mean, I knew about the OzFest because it had already happened like two years in a row already. But I really thought the second stage meant that like uh, you'd play in front of like three to 500 people that were going to get a hot dog in between seeing the real bands on the main stage. That's really what I thought it was going to be. And that is and not never what the second, uh, the second stage of OzFest was. The first, oh my Lord, the first shows was, um, I believe it was Holmdale, New Jersey. Two, two shows, in like we played two shows at the same venue two days in a row. I'll never forget, they had the stage set up and there was a big open area and then a big grassy hill that went over kind of like great woods. And on the other side of the hill was the amphitheater. And I believe it was seven dust, seven dust or Soulfly was playing and we could hear them playing and we're kind of like tuning up and getting ready. And, uh, and they go, okay, guys, get ready. You're, you're almost up. And then we heard the music stop in the crowd. And then I heard the, the announcer say, all right, give it up for seven dust or Soulfly, whoever it was. They said, no, now head over to the uh, head over to the second stage for Kilgore, and we just like four count, just start going into it, and just thousands of people come over the hill. It looked like a scene from like Braveheart, <laughs> and we're playing, and there was dust coming up because they were like coming over the hill, and there was there must have been fifteen thousand people at the second stage, giant pits, dust bowls. But it was I was like, what is this? 
This is why I wanted to have you on the show because your career is so banana pants that your first (laughs) tour was on the OzFest playing after System of a Down and before Incubus. Yeah, and every every day that the the time the time whoa the time slots would change every day. So if you played at noontime uh, on one day, the next day you'd play at one. So all the bands would move. So System of a Down before us Incubus. So if we played at noon, then the next day play at one, two, three. I think then four was the last time slot. It rotated Motorhead, to give all the bands a chance, except for the headliner of the second stage. Mo- Motorhead Motorhead headline that stage. But all the other bands rotated. But once you once you finish playing like the four o'clock slot, the next show you'd play on the main stage, and that seems amazing. But there was nobody at that stage. Like you played in front of like, because as you know, those people that paid like three hundred dollars to see Ozzy in the first ten rows, they're not showing up till like seven p.m. They couldn't give a fuck about young bands, and but they don't let the young fans that with the lawn seats come down to fill the seats. So we'd play in front of like very few people, but, but I also will never forget the first time playing in an amphitheater, even just the sound check, playing my bass, doing a sound check through the PA of a giant amphitheater, like through Ozzy's PA. Like what? Yeah. I was like, what is happening? Yeah. So that was cool. And, uh, so yeah, so that was that was the start of the Ozfest, and so that those fifteen thousand kids coming up over the hill, that was my entire summer, and uh, you know, you're hanging out with all your, you know, bands you love. I I had this um, I had this routine. You know, I told you there were nobody in the seats in the first like thirty rows of because nobody showed up till like seven. I had a I had a routine. I would go into catering. And I would get a piece of cheesecake around like 2.30 p.m. or something like that. And I, I would go to the main main stage and I would find a seat. I didn't get too close because I don't want the band to see me like, who's this idiot eating cheesecake? I'd sit about like 10, 20 rows back and I'd eat cheesecake while watching Tool every day uh, oh. in 1998. <laughs> that was my routine. Tool and cheesecake. <laughs> Oh my I'm god. I'm sure if somebody if somebody has some photos of the crowd, you'll probably see me because it was almost every show. Yeah. Oh, here here's a really good one about that tour. So so Megadeth was on after Tool. And now Sharon Osbourne obviously was the queen that just ran the whole thing, but this is before the TV show. So she could walk around the crowds. Nobody had any idea who Sharon Osbourne was. Now she's a TV star, but at the time, you only knew who she was if she was a ma- if, if you were in one of the bands. And so I'm this green young kid from Rhode Island that had never toured in his life. And all of a sudden I'm on the Ozfest and I'm just eating it up, of course. So, um, so Sharon, I'm talking to Sharon Osborne and you could tell she, she took a liking to me, I think because I was so green, she probably got a kick out of the fact that I was like, wow, this is crazy. And uh, she was talking about something about like, oh, well, you know, when you watch Ozzy from the side of the stage, it's a whole nother uh, it's a whole nother entertainment value right there or something. And I was like, oh, I was like, I and I said, uh, because I would watch bands from the side of the stage, the main stage. But I said, oh, I go I go, you know, with our passes, once once Megadeth goes on, I said they close off even the catering area. I go I go second stage bands. We can't go even pass through catering. And she goes, come with me. And she takes my hand and walks me like a little kid, because I was a little kid, walks me into this production office. 
and she opens the door and there's a guy named Steve Varga, who I'm still friends with, this guy from Australia, but he apparently must have worked, managed the production office or something. So, but I didn't know by the time she opens the door and obviously just trying to make me feel like I was a little important or something because I was just this kid. And she opens the door and she looks at Steve Varga and points at me and says, this is Marty O'Brien from the band Kilgore. She says, give this man a universal laminate. And now the universal laminate, the only people that had the laminate that said universal was Ozzy's family and his band. And like when you saw the piece of paper that showed all the all the security passes for the for the security guards to know what was what, it was like this giant grid of passes, but it went up to a pyramid. And at the very top, it said universal. And under it, it said anywhere, anytime. It was like, don't mess with anybody. For anybody that's never been backstage at a show and it was magnified because it was the OzFest that. They're, the passes aren't the same. There are people that are working. There's yeah. people that can just go after the show's over or there's a VIP section for VIPs. And yep. having been backstage at so many OzFests over the years, because there were so many bands and some of the bands were really new up to like a guy like Ozzy, they had to limit who got access to what because otherwise, because you know, all those second stage bands that were making crap money would have been backstage eating Ozzy's food. They yeah. would have been running around <laughs> on Ozzy's stage while there's pyro going off. So like it's that scene in Wayne's world when Wayne and Garth yes. get the all access yeah. laminate at Alice Cooper. This is what you are getting handed. Yeah. The ultimate pass that says anywhere, anytime. And uh, so that was 98, right? And I'm just going to flash forward quickly. Two years later, I was on another OzFest with Tommy Lee. And and I made a joke about like, oh, man, I had the Universal laminate last time. And Sharon Osbourne walked me into the production office, gave me another Universal laminate. And that one says Marty Osbourne is the name on it. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. But but to go back to 98 on the OzFest 98 tour. One day I was standing waiting for a restroom that was kind of near the catering and Adam, the guitar player from Tool, who I didn't know, but I was just, you know, didn't want to bother me standing next to me and he's waiting and he could probably just tell that I'm just one of the kids that plays on the second stage. And he goes, how'd you get a universal laminate? Because <laughs> <laughs> Adam Jones from Tool doesn't even have one. Yes, he has. I mean, he has a great, I mean, his dressing room is probably right down the hall from Ozzy's, but mine was the one that said like, you know, and uh, so that was kind of funny. So one, you know, you said like, your career is this crazy thing. It is a very crazy that I, I was on three different OzFest tours with a different band each time. 98 was Kilgore, 2000 was Tommy Lee's band Methods of Mayhem, and then 2002 was with uh, uh, Tommy Lee's solo band. And um, yeah, so just all over the place with uh, with that. Here, Here's a crazy, here's a funny Pantera story is that, you know, younger kids these days are like, wow, you, you got to see Pantera back in the day? And I almost feel bad telling the story i'm like i was like i hate to say it i go i i think i've actually watched over 90 pantera shows and they're like what do you mean so in 2000 on the Ozfest, we were on the main stage with uh methods of mayhem 
and Pantera was on that stage. So that was the summer of 2000. Got to know those guys. So six months later, just six months later, um, no, maybe close to a, close to a year later, the following summer, Pantera is still on, on tour promoting that reinventing the steel album. Um, but now I'm playing for static X opening for Pantera again. So I opened for Pantera on two different tours, but they were still on their reinventing the steel tour. So I played in two different bands on two different legs of Pantera tours. And I was a huge Pantera fan. So I would watch every show and, uh, usually from right on the side of the stage. And I mean, it, it was crazy. Rex would even be like, uh, He'd come over to the side of the stage during a quick break, drink some water. He'd be like, how's my amp sound? I'm like, sounds great. He goes, you got to hear it out front. He goes, go, go sit in front, go sit in front of the amp. I was like, what? And he goes back out and he plays, plays a song and he's looking out. He's looking at me doing this. Like, and I'm like, what is he doing? And his, his tech Sterling goes, he wants you to go sit in front of the amp. I'm like, during their show on stage <laughs> like what are you talking and and i can see rex he's playing he's looking back on you know like like you got to hear this thing that's what he's telling me and so sterling the, the tech was just like go ahead so i felt retarded but in the middle of a pantera show some kid runs out and just sits down in front of the amp and rex is playing some huge pantera song your looking face back is going, melting yeah, he's he's looking back at me going, heck, yeah, right. I'm like, this is retarded. <laughs> what am I doing here? Yeah. So that was fun. So that's my Pantera story that I was on uh, two different tours. Yeah. I knew that that mid to late 90s new metal era in music was going to come back. Yeah. Because a few years ago, younger kids that would see me at shows or would text the radio station or email or whatever. This was even before WAF got sold, but definitely since COVID and the podcast and all of that, because a lot of these old stories are coming up on the podcast now. Yeah. And people are like, wait, you saw such and such a band? Wait, you met so-and-so? And it's unbelievable to me that this new generation of rock fans looks yeah. at the opportunity to see bands like, you know, Pantera or the early days yeah. of Tool or early System of a Down or a lot of people don't think Incubus was like a hard rock band, but in the early days they were. Like, yeah. all of those bands, people are like, you got to see all the, and like all the photo galleries that I have up on social media. Yeah. When I started digitizing the old film camera photos, People oh, would yeah. lose their minds at the bands that, when I met them, were all new bands. Yeah. And now speaking, they're the pillars of rock now. Speaking of, my, when I joined Kilgore, it was such a quick thing. I had to learn the songs quick. And, and the first two shows we did was uh, we, we drove to New York City and just did one quick show. But the second show, the second night, I was only in the van for like 10 days. It was right before we left on the tour. We did like a CD release party at Lupo's in Providence. Now, this is Kilgore. They're, it's the big buzz band because we're about to leave on the OzFest. You know who the opening bands were that night of like basically my first? Uh, at 7.15 p.m., Stained went on. And they were just a local band that was, I think they just gotten signed, but nobody, you know, it was just like 
we heard like, wow, you signed a deal. Wow. Like you're going to be recording. That's great. They went on seven fifteen. Uh, a, another Providence band state of corruption went on after that. Then it was nothing face, uh, Godsmack and Kilgore headlining. <laughs> and I remember the Godsmack guys, like I knew that there was like a song getting played locally, but I remember one of the, one of the Godsmack guys being like, wow, man, how you have fun in the office. Hey, if you ever need somebody to open for you again, like let us know. Yeah, cool. It's like, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be awesome, man. And then, like, we went into the Ozfest, and then, like, we come back, and, like, Godsmack is massive. Oh, like, yeah, whatever hit the radio, and it just took off. Yeah, but it was it was already buzzing at the time because they there was a buzz at that show, but they were opening for us at the time. Of course, they would never now because, you know. So, yeah, back then, like, it was exciting. Like, a new band would come out, especially on the Ozfest, and you're like, whoa, we got to go see these bands because you never know which one is going to be and there were so band. many great bands, like just in that, you know, that first Ozfest that you did with Kilgore and you're talking about, you know, going every night and seeing Megadeth and Tool yeah. and like all its system of a down and Incubus, like yeah, it's easy crazy. to look back now and be like, well, yeah, obviously those bands are all great. But all of these bands, this wave, it was a tsunami all at the same time these bands all hit and it was like whosoever song hit the radio, whoever, oh, you're going to open up for them this time around, next time they're opening for you. Like, it was just that time in music. And this is when I started on the air. I started at AAF as an intern in 91. In 94, I got hired in the promotions department part-time to, like, drive the van and hand out bumper stickers. (laughs) Yeah. But I started on the radio in April of 98, so right wow. before you left on that summer Ozfest, so being the night jock, which is where all the new bands started. Wow. My career started with this tsunami wave, like Seven Dust was a brand new band. They had come out the yeah. year before and like Corn and Limp Bizkit, like the music scene, the way that it exploded from Seattle in the early 90s. New metal wasn't as centralized, but it was just undeniable. Yeah, yeah it was huge. And so I, yeah, so we 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 started. Uh, we doing came our up together. Thing around the same time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was ex- it was exciting times. Crazy yeah. to think how how long ago that was. I know, which is why I was like, oh my god, I have to have Marty on the show because you and I's careers have continued and gone in ways neither one of us could have imagined all over the place yeah looking back at it like eating cheesecake watching tool (laughs) like every night and like waiting for the bathroom next to adam jones like now sharon osborne everybody knows who she is but like that she kind of adopted you as like a son and gave you like your first all access pass (laughs) like this is just ridiculous and I have to tell this story because I've been I've been telling that past story for years. And then maybe like maybe like six or seven years ago, I ran into her again. So now the story has another funny twist because people I tell the people the story about it. And they're like, oh, OK, we heard it already. You know, you got your Ozzy, your Marty Osborne pass and all that stuff. But here's a funny twist is so I did the Ozfest 98. I got the, the universal laminate and then Ozfest 2000. My universal laminate said, uh. 
said Marty Osborne, you know, so you would think like, oh, you must be really good friends with her, you know, and she did took me under a wing and was so nice. Like I remember one time when, when we played Great Woods on that OzFest, actually, I think it was OzFest 2002 because I'd come around, you know, twice, different OzFest. And uh, the the guest list tickets were just like lawn seats. And I said to Sharon, I said, hey, uh, any chance, um, are there any tickets I could get a ticket from my mom, you know, or my parent, my family's here. And, uh, and she... I ran into her later in the day and she like pulled out tickets out of her, out of her shirt, you know, and she like gave me these, uh, these tickets. And, uh, so it's very cool like that. But here's the funny part is about like seven years ago or so I ran into her at the Roxy. Now I hadn't seen her in 20 years and I look different. I got a beard now and I'm, I'm not the young kid, the little kid that I, you know, she knew back then. And she's walking towards me. It was a black label society show and she's walking towards me. And, uh, and I just quietly said to her, I said, I said, hi, Sharon. I said, it's, it's, uh, it's Marty from uh, Tommy Lee's band. You remember me? She's very honest. She just put her hand on my, on my forearm and says, sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure if I like went into more detail, like, remember I played for Tommy Lee and you, know, you, used yeah. to give me, you gave me the pass. Like, oh, maybe if I showed her a photo of what I looked like back then. But she's I been thought that managing Ozzy's career and her yeah. own for decades. Like, there's just yeah. no way she can remember everybody she meets. <laughs> That's so yeah. funny. So I just I just noticed I'm in MCHQ, my studio, and I just noticed I have an old Ozfest poster on the wall. So Great Woods got named the Tweeter Center. And that's OzFest 2001. Listen to the lineup. Black Sabbath, Marilyn Manson, Slipknot, Papa Roach, Linkin Park, and Crazy Town. Wow. I was at that show. Headlining the second stage, Disturbed. I didn't play that show, but I was at that show just hanging out. I was, was just for fun, I was rolling on Disturbed's uh, bus for like a week during that tour. I just like, just went and hung out on the tour. Yeah, as you yeah. do when yeah. you're when you're Marty Osborne. But I had I had to tell that story about uh, about like, you know, people think I'm bragging. Oh, you know Sharon Osborne so well. Well, about twenty years later, she didn't remember me. So I they- know Sharon. <laughs> Sharon doesn't know me. That's all right. I had to tell that story. All right. Too so, funny. so you end up with Kilgore, then with Methods of Mayhem, and yeah. then. Tommy Lee comes out with his solo band and you go back out on the Ozfest again in yep, I do 2002. That yep. And then, and then you, then what happens? Cause I, I need to get to Celine. Like I need to get to how well, this pop stuff started. This is, this is good. So because the Tommy Lee gig would be like, okay, we're going to be on tour for like two years. This is great. And then the tour ends up being six months. And then it's like, well, what am I going to do now? You know? So, I really wanted to get into the recording session world, you know? And I thought that, wow, now that I have like Tommy Lee and static X and disturbed, like under my belt, I'm thinking like well, this, I should be able to use this stepping stone kind of thing into the recording world too. And I quickly learned that nobody wanted to hear anything. Just, just, you just you, as you'd expect, like you're kind of pegged as like a, you, know, you play for static X. You're not going to, you're not going to come here and play on this pop record or, you know, and you, you know you got kind of that that attitude and then i learned like there's a popular saying that um 
you'll get session work when a session player dies. That's kind of true because like there's just a few bass players that play on everything. And then, but then I learned that like the people who play on everything, it's like the buddy of the producer who, you know, obviously they play on a record. They're obviously a skilled player. That player likes their, the producer likes their playing and likes him as a person. And I always joke, I said, if, if, if you're, if you're at the producer's barbecues, you're on his records too. You know what I mean? It's like hanging out. So I always wanted to get into that world. And and if I could actually not tour and just be the guy to just like record on all these records, I thought that would be so cool too, you know? And, um, uh, you know, uh, Evanescence, right? So Evanescence comes out and that first single was out. And I think the record, the record hadn't even been out yet. And I somehow ended up with like a CD sampler that had like three songs or something like that. And I heard that those first three songs. And I remember thinking like, wow, like this is really cool. And um, I think this is in the days of like message boards and things like that. And yeah, I came the across internet the music. was still new. Yeah. And like, anyway, I remember seeing that Ben Moody from Evanescence was like communicating with people and fans. It was like out of some kind of message board or something. And I emailed him through that. And I just said, uh, and I said, Hey, uh, you know, love, love these songs that you, you wrote, you know, cause he was like, it was obvious he was the main song order. And I just remember reaching out and just being like, Hey, if you, and I probably made some comment, like, if you ever need some bass or whatever, you know, and I never heard back from him. I said, I love these, this sampler that I have. And, you know, this is really different stuff. And I never heard back from him. So like a year goes by and Evanescence is already the biggest band. They just blew up. He's only like 20 years old, but the thing blew up so big. And then he quit the band. And I, uh, I run into Ben Moody outside the Viper room in Hollywood. And, um, and I'm like, Hey man, I said, I, I said, my name's Marty. I play for Tommy Lee and a few other people. And I said, uh, I said, man, I, I came across like a, before the album even came out, I came across this like sampler, and I said, I actually emailed you and his eyes lit up and he goes, I got that email. He goes, I, I brushed it off. Like, like there's no way like this guy that plays for all these people was like saying he, he, he brushed it off and didn't reply because he thought that it was just some sort of like somebody was messing with him. He was like, oh, my God, I remember that email. Anyway, that was kind of a funny moment. So um, he, had, he either had just quit Evanescence or he was about to or something like that. So we hit it off and like hung out that night and exchanged numbers and all that. And then some time went by and he calls me up and he says, Hey, uh, you know, I left Evanescence and um, I'm in town recording. Uh, I'm writing songs with Avril Lavigne right now. Uh, he goes, Hey, you want to hang out later tonight after the session? Sure. So anyway, I hung out with him. And then, um, and then like a month later, he says, Hey, I'm back in town again. I'm, I'm writing song. This is hilarious. He says, I'm writing songs with Kelly Clarkson. You know, who that is. And I go, no, I don't know who that is. And he goes, uh, she's on that um, American Idol show, you know. And she was the first person that was either she had just won or was about to win. She was the first winner, now, yeah. Now, it's hard to imagine people being like, I've never heard of American Idol. But it was so new that when you mentioned it, it wasn't like Coca-Cola. Like it just, you know, like the brand it is now. When you brought up her name, people would say like, oh, yeah, isn't that that girl that won that contest show? Like they would say it like that. Because they hadn't. Yeah, because so now hey, I'm, there's I'm 50 contest shows, but back then it was just that one. Yeah. 
and it and nobody had won the show and and had proven that you could win the show and actually be a real artist in the real world. Like it seemed so removed from the real world. It yeah. was like, oh, cool, cool. And so uh, he, he goes, hey, I'm writing songs. He goes, will you come play on these demos? It's like, yeah, sure. So I go by a studio and like late at night, I just play on these like three songs that he's writing for Kelly Clarkson. And then um, like a week later, he calls me again and says, hey, I'm back in town again. And he says, Clive Davis loves the demos we did. And we have the budget now to re-record the songs all over again, but like the big budget, you know, the big full album. He goes, do you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, of course. So I go into the studio and I record these same three songs. I got paid twice to play the same song. So I play this, the next song and I just brushed it off. Like, cause like I said, it, it was a TV show, but it wasn't. And when I would tell people, Oh, what have you been doing? Oh, I did a session the other day for this Kelly Clarkson. Isn't that that girl that won that contest show? Yeah. It's that thing, you know? And then all of a sudden that, that since you've been gone song, since you've been gone, I didn't play on that song, but that song came out and that was the most played song at radio, I think in 2004. And anyway, that album blew up. It sold like 8 million copies or something like that. And it went from like, isn't that that girl that won that contest show? If I mentioned it anywhere after that point, they were like, you played on that? Like, oh my God. So <laughs> it was uh, it was huge. It was a massive album and it was like a big thing for me, you know? And um, and one of the songs I played on was a song called um, Because of You, which ended up being um, a huge number one hit for her. And, uh, and I just think it was funny that like this random, hey, will you just come play on this thing? And it was like the biggest thing ever. So what I learned is, you know, the joke about you'll get a session when a session player dies, that's the case. Or you can get in with a young producer that's only like 21 years old and doesn't have his players yet. So I became his player for bass. And from that point on, I would just play on everything he did. So all the a lot of the pop stuff I did in the early days of back then Celine D he he uh, wrote and produced a few Celine Dion songs. I'm on some of that stuff. Uh, and what's funny is that people might think that are just fans of Evanescence that don't understand how the business works. Yeah. That he's the guy and then he left the band and like never had a career again. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. he's working with everybody. He's just yeah. not in Evanescence anymore. Yeah, just amazing, amazing songwriter. He's one of those guys that just like he'll plug a guitar in with his headphones, and you can't really hear what he's doing. He'll like chunk, 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 come up with something, and then he'll layer another track, and then layer another track, and in like three minutes, he'll he'll unplug the the headphones so you could hear it on the speakers, and you're like, like this little thing he just whipped together sounds like a hit song. You're just like, oh my god, like truly amazing. Yeah, so I, all sorts of stuff, but then I mean. And then obviously once once I played on the Kelly Clarkson thing and it was sold 8 million copies and I would, I mean, I would even just get random emails from people like, hey, I'm a producer. Uh, I'm from Germany, but I'm coming into LA to record and I, uh, I want a certain sound and I saw your name in the credits. Are you available for these dates? Like it just led to all sorts of other sessions and new, you know, like uh, just random, you know, I can't tell you how many female pop singer sessions i played on back then because i have a i have like a a box it's like a filing cabinet box with just every time i play a a, a recording session 
I write, I chart out the song, just, you know, not like musical notation, just kind of chart out the basic notes. And at the top, I always write the date, what bass I played on it, what studio it was at, you know, so it's like a, and then I put it in this file. And wow, one day I went through these and I was like, I don't remember. I forgot, you know, it's just like random girl singers, pop stuff that just never came out. And so it made me realize like, wow, like those, those early sessions on those pop albums led to so many other things, you know, even though they weren't released, you still got paid to play on it, you know? And that's a whole, like I talked to Jelly Roll about the Nashville kind of songwriting thing. Yeah. Because there's so much music getting made that people don't even know exists. These pop records that you're playing on that they never got a deal, they were demoed, nothing ever happened to them. But there's a whole system of musicians and and recording engineers that are working and getting paid, even though some of the stuff that they worked on never ends up being something that you hear on the radio. Yeah, or a song that gets written and it never takes off or it never gets released, and then somebody pulls it out of the archives 15 years later and like, oh, yeah, like, uh, you know... uh, Keith Urban recorded my song that, uh, you know, you always hear these stories like it was something I wrote like five years ago. I just pulled it out of the archives and it got it became a number two song or whatever, you know. Yeah, it's amazing. So you played with Kelly Clarkson. Did you get to record with Celine or did you just play on her record? Did you get to meet her? I never got to meet her. Um, I met Kelly Clarkson a couple times in the studio. She would come and hang out and stuff like that. That was fun. But she the Celine cool. thing. Oh, yeah. She's super cool. And uh, the Celine thing at the time, it was when she was doing the residency in Vegas and where they had built they had built a whole theater for her. And so she was working in Vegas. So we've recorded my bass tracks here in L.A. And then they took the hard drives to Vegas and she recorded her vocals in the palms hotel there's a recording studio or maybe there was a recording studio in the palms and she did her uh she did her set her things in there so i've never met her i hope i hope to meet her someday though and be like hey by the way i played on your song (laughs) vegas was one of those places that had a reputation after the rat pack that that's kind of where like people went at the end of their career when they were kind of has-beens And because she had little kids and wanted to have a stable life, Celine was one of the people responsible with making those Vegas residencies. Yeah, that was one of the. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a big extravaganza. Yeah. Because she just didn't want to tour because she was a mom and had young kids and wanted them to have a stable life. So she's like, I'm just going to set up in Vegas and you can come to me. So, you know, how you asked me, did you ever get to meet Celine? You know, like, cause I get that asked a lot. Like, like, so when you do these big pop records, like you don't really meet the people usually. And I go, yeah, sometimes they pop in sometimes, but I have a good one where I didn't think I was going to meet the person. And I met the person in a, in a strange way. This was a good one. So my, uh, uh, I, I can't remember what year this was, maybe 2007 or something like that. So I get a call like, Hey, can you head down to, uh, to Henson Studios and Henson Studios is uh oh, wait it, uh, it, I'm a psychotic Muppet fan so I need to just yes I need to soak it in soak it in okay go ahead <laughs> go ahead so so the very famous Henson Studios used to be um uh 
Charlie Chaplin Studios. And then it became uh, A&M Studios through the 70s and 80s. And then it became Henson Studios. But in the 70s and 80s, I mean, I think parts of like Pink Floyd, The Wall and like Michael Jackson's Thriller and like uh, We Are the, the music video for We Are the World is, is in the big soundstage. I mean, just it's one of the biggest, most famous recording studios. So I get this call. Hey, can you come down and play on this track on this song? Yeah, sure. So I get the call and I go down there and it's for Chris Cornell. Right. And I'm thinking, cool, Chris Cornell. I get to record with Chris Cornell. And I'm thinking it's and it's with the songwriter, um, songwriter, producer, this guy, Brian Howes. So I'm thinking I'm not going to get to meet Chris Cornell. He's probably not going to be there, but that'd be cool if he was. So. I go to I go to Henson Studios, right? Now you know recording studios have these huge thick doors. It takes a lot of weight to open them, you know? So I I look in the little window and I see the producer and the engineers, they're like listening with their heads bobbing in front of the uh, mixing board. So I, I open up the big door and they're clearly listening really loud too. And so I don't want to interrupt. So I let the door close behind me, but I don't want to stand there and block the door. So I just take a couple steps to the left. So I'm not in front of the door and I'm just leaning up against the wall. And if I look to the left, I can see the big glass window and, uh, and there's a drummer in there and he's playing drums and, uh, and the producer and the engineer are facing kind of this way on an angle, kind of, kind of a little towards me. And they're both just like this listening behind the mixing board. And they, they're looking up a couple times at the drummer and stuff, you know, and I don't want to interrupt. I'm thinking they don't know me. I got a call from a manager that said, "Hey, will you you know go go visit my buddy Brian Howes? He needs bass on this song today." So the song ends, and the producer and the engineer they start to look up towards me, and I'm about to go, uh, "Hey, I'm Marty. I'm the bass player." You know, and they look straight up at me. And by the way, the song they're listening to, it's a Chris Cornell song. And there's vocals on it and he's like singing. It's this amazing song. And I'm, and I'm hearing it like, Whoa, like this is like a, almost like a black hole sun kind of like slow song, but like, it's a hook. And, and I was like, Whoa, this sounds like a, like a hit song to me. Like I'm going to be on this song with Chris Cornell or is this happening right now? And so the song ends with the fading symbols and the producer, Brian and the engineer, Jay, that they both look up at me and I think they're about to talk to me and I'm about to say, hey, I'm Marty, I'm the bass player. And they look up at me, look me straight in the eyes, or so I think they're looking me right in the eyes, and they go, sounds great, Chris. Uh, you need anything? And I'm like, there was a glass window behind me that was just black, right? I would stepped out of the way from the doorway, so I didn't want the door to hit me in the ass if somebody came in. So the, the main room is over here, this big glass window. You know, those big 20-foot wide windows oh, for yeah. the recording studio. But there was, there was a smaller room off to the side. Usually the vocal booth is tiny. The vocal booth is tiny. And I got my back to this glass window because I think they're just listening to a demo and the drummer's playing along with the drum demo. So they look up at me and they go, you need anything, Chris? And I hear Chris Cornell's voice go, no, I'm good, good. Maybe oh. just do a, you know, we could just keep doing passes. And I turn around. And I realized Chris Cornell is, I had my back to the glass. He's recording vocals and he's surrounded by candles and he has the light off. So he's in this vocal room surrounded by candles with the headphones and the big microphone. And he's like, yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. We'll just, you know, keep going. So what was happening was they were recording the drums 
and they had like a rough vocal, but Chris Cornell was getting vocal ideas. So while the drummer was doing takes, he just kept doing a few takes. Chris was singing along and you, every time he did a take, you heard the vocal get a little more stronger. And he was like, you could tell he was like weaving in and out of ideas. And, uh, and I was just, and so they go, Hey, you know, uh, Chris is, Chris is kind of on a roll right now with this, with these vocal ideas. She goes, you want to just sit down and just kind of hang out? I go, yeah, of course. So I sit down and I'm just watching it all happen. And, uh, they just kept going with it. And he goes, you know, he's really on a roll. We're just going to let him work with the vocal and just, we're going to keep doing vocal takes. And they were like, it started getting later. And they were like, would you, I hate to do this to you. Would you mind coming back again tomorrow to do the bass? Cause we think we're just going to make this a vocal day now. Cause he's on a roll. I go, go with it. Sure. I can, sure. Two days in the studio with Chris Cornell. <laughs> sure. You know? And so we record the song and I'm like, wow, like that. And I'm telling all my friends, I recorded this song with Chris Cornell today. And I go, it's, it's like, not just like an album track. I go, this was like a radio single, you know, like I was like, this is amazing. So a while after we've recorded it, a while, a little while goes back and I, um, and I talked to the producer and he goes, man, Chris, Chris loved your, uh, your playing on that. He goes, he goes, he's, he's so excited about the song. He wants to use the same players again and record like maybe three or four more, like maybe work on more. And he goes, he wants to use all the same players. And I'm thinking like, Oh my God, I'm going to be on a Chris Cornell album. Like this is crazy. So, uh, got to hang out with him a little bit in the session too. And he was super cool. And, uh, and then like a month goes by and I didn't hear anything about the song. And I, I reached out to the producer. Hey, what's going on? Are they, is he, you still going to do a few more songs? She goes, yeah. He goes, I was just having trouble scheduling it. You know, he goes, but he's, he loved that one song. He goes, he goes, man, when we were in the studio, um, he goes, every time your little bass thing came around, he goes, there was like a, there was like a little triplet thing. Do, 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 like a did a little melody bass thing. He goes, every time that came around, Chris would be in the control room and he would air bass your little part when it came on every time. I was like, that's so cool. <laughs> so again, another couple months go by and I reach out to the producer. And I said, Hey man, just touching bass. Like what's going on with that song? And he's still, and I don't know what's going on, man. You know, he goes, um, and then I ran into him once. It was at the Rainbow Bar and Grill. I said, what's going on with the song? I was like, I was like, that could be a movie soundtrack or something, like a single in a movie. That's what a song that is. He goes, oh, you didn't hear? I go, no, what? He goes, Chris pitched the song to the new American Idol winner, uh, David Cook. And they... Rob Cavallo, the producer that did like Green Day's American Idiot, they go, he's producing the record and they've recorded the song. It's going to be David Cook's first single. It's a song called Light On. And it's an amazing song. Um, and he goes, but they they used all different players. Like Rob Cavallo used his guys, you know? I was like, oh my God. So, you know, years later, uh, Chris obviously passed away. And like a couple of years ago, like a big box set came out of like all Chris Cornell rarities. I was like, I was looking through the list. Like, is it going to be on there? And it wasn't. But the song came out as a, as a, as a David Cook song. And he did a great job, but I still have the Chris Cornell version on my hard drive of him singing the song. And it's amazing. Totally amazing. He's one and of those guys that. When he passed, like, I just was talking to Chris from the record company, 
that band, the yep. record company. And yep. we were talking about Chris Cornell and about artists that passed that like hit hard. And when yeah. Cornell passed that one, Dimebag Daryl hit me really, really hard because yeah. he had come through so many times and being at AAF, I, I knew him. I wasn't best friends with him, but I knew him. We had hung yeah. out a bunch of times and Chris Cornell dying was just gut wrenching Com- because complete shock too. complete. Yeah. Shock. And, and like, and you can attest to this, like when you're thinking about that generation of, of music, right. That the nineties music that we're talking about, like Soundgarden, yep. one of the big bands to come out of Seattle, but his voice his persona, his essence, like, yeah, he just oozed cool. Oh, and yeah. even the biggest rock stars in the world would nerd out at the opportunity <laughs> yes. to meet Chris Cornell, yeah. to be around Chris Cornell. Like, yep. I, it, how loved he was. Yeah. I just wonder if, like, he ever really knew. I know. Probably not. So so influential. I went to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery and went when the last time I was oh, in LA and I went to his grave. Wow. And it was there was something about seeing his name like etched in granite that yeah. really made it real for I was like, Oh wow. I have these great recordings of him playing acoustic on my show. Really? He did this solo stripped down version of Call wow. Me a Dog off the Temple of the Dog record, which I, wow. that record I love so much. And it was just, I mean, you know how those radio station visits are. It's like radio stations don't have these big recording studio rooms. Like you come in, you drop your stuff, yeah. you plug in. <laughs> yeah. And Chris yeah. Cornell just came in. We, we put a mic on his guitar. He moved the microphone in the studio around and then he just played. And it was just like, I think what he played four songs. His wife Vicky was there, and I after one of the songs, like I forgot that I was the DJ and had to like talk because yeah. <laughs> I just was just sitting there yeah. in awe. Just it was a private Chris Cornell concert for just me and yeah. my station. That's how I was watching him track those vocals in that booth. Just like whoa, yeah. And then it was like you can hear the melody taking shape more every time he does a pass through the song. Like it was. It was amazing, yeah. The whole songwriting process for people that can't do it, myself included, is this really crazy thing. And it did you see that um, that Beatles docu-series that came out, the Peter Jackson yes. one, where you're yeah. watching Paul McCartney yeah. write a song right. that's so famous now. Yeah, and he just, like, mumbles it. Oh, yeah, I love uh, Jojo was a villain, and uh, he just mumbled it out of, just pulled it out of the air. <laughs> and it was so weird yeah. to hear him working the parts out because it's like you're watching someone yeah. discover something that you, it's like watching a baby walk its first steps. Yeah. You know how to walk. We yeah. know how the song ends. Yeah. But to Amazing. but to have a seat to be able to watch the creative process. Yeah. And to see a musical genius and I think Chris Cornell is a musical genius to have Absolutely. a front row seat to watch him craft a melody and a song. Yeah. 
That was crazy. Yeah, that's nuts. So you end yeah. up playing for Kelly Clarkson. You end up playing for Celine. You end up tracking a song with Chris Cornell. Yep. And then the, the session thing kept going. But then somewhere around like 2008 is when all like I had made a decision somewhere like between 2004 and 2008. 2004 was when I started when I did that Kelly Clarkson record. 2003, 2004. And I had a good like four or five year run of like, oh, wow, like I'm in the session world and I could just stay in town. And I love touring, but I was like, there's something amazing about just getting a phone call and just going and plucking on something and like, hold on, now it's a giant platinum record on the wall. And it was just like a half hour moment. Like that's, it was amazing to me. So I really wanted to focus on that. And I was, but around 2008, all the record labels started crumbling, like you know the, the whole downloading thing. Got weird music downloading, every, uh, like everything changed. Every uh, every record label executive or record label people that had great jobs were becoming real estate agents. Like, hmm, what's going on? And uh, and that what came along with it was the session world. The sessions started dwindling, and the money was getting smaller, and they were fewer and far between. And the, the big recording studios were closing and then producers started doing them in their houses now, which is so common. So by 2010, 2011, um, you know, I'd run into big producers that have, that have played on, uh, you know, like I've done sessions for be like, Hey man, what's up? I saw you, uh, I saw you did that record. Like, you know, crack a joke about like, should have called me for bass. You know, they go, yeah, you know, the budgets are a little bit smaller these days. And, you know, I just, I just pluck a little bass on it myself and you know, like it seems fine. Like, so the session world was kind of like dwindling and it was a bummer. So in 2011, it was kind of like, Oh man, like the, the session world is not happening anymore. So I put the feelers out that with, with friends um, that I was looking for another tour. Like I wanted to, I wanted to, after five years of trying to stay home in LA, I wanted to get back on the road. So I put the feelers out sometime in 2011, like, hey, man, just reach out, letting you know if you ever know, hear of anything, what's going on. Um, what's funny is me reaching out didn't lead to this, but out of the blue, I get a phone call um, from my buddy, and he was managing Lita Ford at the time. And he goes, he goes, hey, man, he goes, this is what he said. He goes, Lita Ford. I go, uh, yeah. He goes, is that be something you'd be interested in? And I was like, I said, well, I, I said, I, I am looking for a tour. I, I, I've been reaching out. I'm looking, I do want to get back on the road with somebody again. And, and I go, it seems kind of cocky to me, but I knew that she wasn't doing much, you know, remember appeared in the, in the nineties and just, you know, wasn't doing much. And I, and I knew she had come back in like 2009 or something, but cause I read music news. I see that she had just done a few shows and I, so I go, I'm, I said, I'm looking for a tour, but I go, but what is she, honestly, what is she doing lately, you know? And he goes, oh, dude, there's a new album about to come out. Gary Hoey, actually. Gary Hoey produced it. Lo another local musician out of New England. Look, I love me some Gary Hoey. And, uh, and he goes, oh, she has a new record coming out called Living Like a Runaway, and she's opening for Def Leppard all summer, starting soon. And I was like, what? <laughs> so... But I said to him, this is the funny part, because he was my buddy, so I could talk to him like a friend. I go, I go, dude, I'm I'm interested. I go, 
But but I go, let's be honest, dude. I go, it's Lita Ford. Isn't she looking for somebody with like leather pants and long hair? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> let's be honest here. Come on. Like, yeah, I could obviously I can play the gig, but there's other guys that are prob I'm thinking there's probably guys that are probably cooler for the gig or or that have more of that eighties vibe, you know? I go, I go, isn't she looking for somebody with long hair and leather pants? And he goes, No, dude. He goes, he goes, I think it's a perfect fit. And he goes, she's, she goes, she's already been on your website. She's seen all the people you played for. And she's like, cool, call that dude up, you know? And he was like, I know Marty. So, um, so I get a phone call from Lita Ford, which is crazy to think. Cause I, I remember seeing Lita Ford once at the rainbow bar and grill. And I remember thinking like, it was one of those mystique things like, Whoa, like, cause you know, she like lived in the Caribbean or something and, and all of us were like, dude, that is Lita Ford in person. That's crazy, you know? And this was and like when you 20... go back and look at like that metal era for, yeah. a, for a girl that was in high school looking at all of big. these huge bands, there weren't that many women yeah. that were there kicking the door in. Like the first rock star I ever met when I was an intern at AAF was Joan Jett. Cool. And it was like, oh my, the first thing I thought was, oh my God, that's Joan Jett. And the second thing I thought was, she's so short. Yeah. She's tiny. Lita too. Lita too. But these, but these women, like they kicked the door in for women like me, even though I'm not in a band, like they had to show that they could, they could keep up. Yeah. And Lita is a fucking badass. She, uh, I ended, so I ended up playing with her for 10 years and like, obviously she had her big in the eighties, but then you don't, then you think back like, wait a minute, 10 years before her eighties career, she was in the runaways in the seventies. So touring with her, she'll, you know, if you're on, if you're in a van or you're in a tour bus with somebody and somebody's just telling stories for, for a while, you kind of start to t- tune stuff out or whatever. And, and like, so Lita would be like telling a story like, Oh yeah, you know, we were on this houseboat and, and we were doing this and oh, we were eating off these plates and we were throwing the plates in the water and the river. And, I, and I'm, you know, I brush it off and then she'll mention like, yeah, so then Sid vicious or whatever. And I'm like, like, wait a minute. I'm like, who, who are you talking about? She's like the sex pistol. I'm like this story that I'm half listening to is about you with the sex pistols and you and then i then you remember like oh that's right like i mean she's got stories like um she she missed her high school graduation and her dad had to go to the high school long beach high school he had to go pick up the diploma in person because she couldn't make it to the graduation because she was on the road with the runaways and the Ramones at the time <laughs> you know so so anyway touring with lita so Anyway, I, I took that gig and it was, like I said, she was opening for Def Leppard the whole summer. So that was amazing. Um, so that was the next chapter of my thing was the Lita Ford gig. And the funny thing is, like, I, you know, I told you, I, I'd spent this whole career playing for all these bands for short periods that I just accepted the fact that when you tour in a band as a hired gun guy like me, it's a short term thing that I just accepted that. So I'll never forget because. When I got the gig with Lita Ford on this Def Leppard tour, I remember my my first post that I put up on Facebook about it, just like letting, like my private Facebook, just letting my friends know. I just assuming it was just a, a short gig. I actually put 
uh, hey, I took a job for the summer. Here are the tour dates. Uh, I'm playing for Lita Ford. We're opening for Def Leppard all summer. But I put, I took a job for the summer. And 10 years later, I, I played with Lita for 10 years. And I just couldn't believe, like, as the years went on and people asked me, like, how long have you been playing for Lita for? And I'm like, I only see seven. I'm like, oh, my God, it's been eight years. Like, I've never had a gig last that long, you know? And so, and uh, I just left the gig a year ago because of uh, the Daughtry gig. And um, that was a hard decision, but that was, so the Lita gig was a, was a 10 year thing that I never expected to be 10 years. And it was, it was awesome. She, she is awesome. And, and then you leave and, and Daughtry and I've had him on the show and was really candid about, you know, coming out of that American Idol machine and all of the people having their fingers in his sound and what they wanted him to be like and whatever. And now he really feels like he's in control of his own musical destiny for the first time. Absolutely. So so joining Daughtry, you joined at the right time when he's calling all the shots. (laughs) Yep. And uh, that's kind of an interesting story how that happened because, you know, I told you way back with the Ben Moody stuff when I was when I was playing for all these pop sessions, Ben Moody wrote co-wrote songs on the first two Daughtry albums and I played demos I played on Daughtry songs not on the albums but the demo versions so I never met Chris back then but Ben Moody and other people you know because I was in that in that machine of songwriters and everybody they were just writing pop songs and trying to get them placed and American Idol was so big at the time it was like hey we're working on the song for, we're going to pitch to David Cook hey we're working on the song we're going to pitch it to David Archuleta you know whatever and sure I'll play on whatever you want so I played on several Daughtry songs back in the day and I still have the charts with the date on them and a couple of them became like pretty big songs but I'm, I'm not on the record but I'm on the demo and Chris's voice is on the demo so about five years into his career, probably five, he's probably on like his third or fourth record or something. And I was at the Sunset Marquee in Hollywood, which is like a bar and a hotel. And I saw Chris Where Daughtry. everybody across. is, by the way. That's yeah, like one yeah. of the places. Yeah. Like I saw, I saw Jimmy Page and Robert Plant at the lobby, like talking to the lady at the desk once, like, oh my God, this is good. <laughs> so uh, it was late at night and I see Chris Daughtry across the bar. And so this was like, Five years earlier, I played on some Daughtry demos, but I'd never met him before. So I just walked up to him and I said, I said, hey, man, I just want to introduce myself. I said, uh, I I actually played on some of your demos. Like, I go, your voice is on them, too, like working demos back. He's like, really? What songs? And I just rattled off a couple songs and I go, whatever the ones that, you know, Ben Moody and uh, David Hodges wrote together. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And he goes, what's your name? I said, Marty. And he goes, he goes, Marty O'Brien. I go, yeah. So he like he actually knew. So like he. Good memory because I guess he knew some of the players that better than Sharon Osbourne's memory. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) and so uh, it was just you know just casual, cool. Oh, cool to meet you, you know. And then, um, and then there was just all these. As the years went on, I would just keep running into him at different places, and he was always super cool. Like, hey man, how you been? What's going on? You know, like just like there were a couple festivals that I played. Uh, with Lita Ford that they happened to be on. One time I was with Lita Ford and we flew into some state to do like play a casino and we had a night off and Daughtry was playing that night. So I texted him and, Hey, what's up? And, and, you know, got to hang out a couple of times. So we've crossed paths over the years. 
And then, um, so this is the really funny part. So uh, January of 2022, the bass player, Josh, who had been in the band like 15 years at that point, um, he posted something on social media saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm leaving the band after 15 years and I just want to spend more time with family and things like that. He's he announced he was leaving. So, I mean, I was completely happy with the Lita Ford gig, but I'm sitting there on my couch and I, I read that social media post or maybe it was the next day I was thinking about it. I'm sitting there with my coffee and I'm contemplating like, ooh, like, should I reach out about that gig? In my head, I'm thinking because I know him, I know Chris, and I was thinking, ooh, should, like, that might be good, that might be a good move for me. But I'm talking myself out of it, like, oh, you know, it's, all my friends are jealous of having the, the not jealous, but like finding a, finding a gig as a, as a session player or, or a hired gun guy like myself. And a stable long, gig for 10 years with Lita. Long term is hard to find, like, like all my buddies are like, God, that Lita gig just keeps on giving, man. You're just like, you you guys are always busy. So I'm grateful for that and aware that that's a great thing to have. So I'm sitting on the couch and I read this post about, about them needing a bass player. And I was like, Ooh, like that might be good for me. But then I'm talking myself out of it. Like, no happy. Um, if it ain't fixed, you know, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. Been in this gig 10 years. I don't need to mix things up. Like, you know, it's all good. But then I'm thinking, ooh, but that would be really good. Like, maybe I should reach out about that. I'm having an internal <laughs> argument in my head. And as I'm sitting there with my coffee being like, ooh, should I reach out? No, I haven't talked to Chris Daughtry in probably a couple of years. Just occasional texts here and there, you know. We're coming right out of COVID. This is January 2022, you know. So I hadn't seen him in person in a few years. And I'm sitting there like, ooh, should I reach out about that? No, no, you got, you got a gig. My phone goes off. Bing. Hey man, this, uh, uh, any chance you're available? I'd love for you to come out. It's Chris Daughtry texting me. Any chance you're available? I'd love for you to come out and do this tour with us. <laughs> what? That's the weirdest coincidence. I'm like, so, um, the crazy thing is I had to turn it down at first. I, I, uh, um, he goes, I said, at first I said, I said, I, you know what? I would love to, that'd be very cool. And he said, okay, cool. He says, we're leaving in two weeks. And I was like, and I, I had to turn it down. I said, wow. I said, I, I can't leave in two weeks. I said, um, I said, in just, in just a few days, I'm, I have a show, a couple shows with Lita Ford. And then we get on, we get on this, um, Monsters of Rock. I think it was Monsters of Rock cruise. I think it was Monsters of Rock cruise. We, I'd done a bunch of cruises with her. And then I said, four days after that cruise, I'm on another cruise called Shiprocked. Uh, I was just going on that cruise as a guest. Like they do this thing called the stowaways. So I was jamming. I said, so I have two cruises that are five days long each. And I said, I, so I'm stacked up for three weeks. And I said, these are all gigs I could never quit like on such short notice, you know? And he goes, oh, that's cool. I understand, you know, say sorry, it didn't work out, you know? I go, yeah, of course, you know? And, uh, and at first I was like, Ooh, that, that would have been good. Like maybe that was meant to be, no, but because it couldn't happen, I just pushed it out of my brain. Like, don't even think about how cool that could have been because it can't happen. I can't quit gigs, you know? And, uh, so then, um, like maybe like four, like four or five days later, 
I see a post on the internet from there's, there's a guy named Barry Squire who helps bands like find musicians. He he organizes auditions and all that. So a post went up about Daughtry seeking a bass player, and I saw that and I was like, I was like, oh man, I was like, was that meant to be? And I just messed it up because I had gigs, you know. It's like oh, so I texted Chris again and I said, hey man, I said, I said I'm sure whoever you get on bass to do this tour is, is just going to end up being the guy. I'm sure that's how it is. You find somebody and they just work out. I said, but if for some reason the guy doesn't work out or the guy you get is a, is a temporary guy. I was like, if, if it's a temporary guy, I say I'd be very interested in the gig long term. I just can't do it right now. You know? And, uh, and he wrote back, Oh, cool. Good to know. And I thought he just kind of shrugged it off. Like, Oh, good to know. Like we have a guy, but good to know. You know? Um, but then an hour later he texted me and he says, Hey, can my manager call you? I was like, sure. So the manager called me and we had a chat and they were, they were all gung ho. And like, you know, it's funny as I, I thought the phone call was going to be more like, uh, kind of like an interrogation, like, who are you Chris had to call and, uh, what's going on? We, you know, and it was the opposite. They were all on board right away. They were like, uh, they were like, okay, cool. So, uh, you know, we're, we're thinking we're going to either have you start in May or maybe in June. We're not sure. We got a temporary guy that's going to play for the next month. And, uh, you know, as it gets closer to May, we can truck all your road cases out to Nashville and get, get things going. And I was like, okay, cool. Uh, and it, it all just happened really fast. And, um, and uh, whenever my friends asked me like, Hey, how's that, how's that Daughtry gig going? I always tell them that like, I knew that, every aspect of it would be great. I knew the shows would be great and the tour, obviously they tour at a, at a high level of, you know, big shows. So I knew all that stuff was great, but the one, I mean, I knew Chris, but the one, what if was, you know, is the hang cool? Are they all cool people? Is it a, you know, fun working environment? You know, so that was the one, what if I, you'd never know. And, uh, and I got out there and they're all super awesome guys. Like I genuinely look forward to seeing everybody when we're back out. And, uh, it's been, it turned out to be a great move for me. And, um, and it's been over a year now. Like, it's funny. I had the gig set for about four, three or four months, but I couldn't really tell anybody yet, you know? And, uh, and then finally, but it, uh, uh, maybe about a month ago was my one year anniversary of actually playing shows with them. And it's been great so far. It's been super fun. It, it's such a yep. crazy, hilarious roundabout story. The way that you can put a career together like that. Yeah. And, and, uh, and the stories are, I mean, you've got filing cabinets full of stories. I do. I do have crazy stories. <laughs> Sometimes I need to hold back because I think if I told the story already. But... <laughs> yeah. Yep. And you He's think about me. all of those artists too. Like, you know, we were talking about Cornell and Dimebag or Lemmy from Motorhead. Like, yep. it's kind of insane to think about all of the artists that, you and I, more you than me, but you and I have come across over the last few decades of our careers that yeah. are gone. Yeah, it's crazy. Like when I went to California for that work trip and I went and saw Chris Cornell at the cemetery, one of the other things I wanted to do was go see Dio. Mm. And so I went to Dio's grave and it's got the big yep. thing with the planters, the devil horns. Yeah. And somebody was like, well, you know, Lemmy's over there. He is. And I was like, holy shit, no way. And and like, yeah, Lemmy and Dio kind of stare at each other for eternity now at the cemetery. And like, 
Yeah. Every time I'm there, I, I go because I've, I've taken friends up there to see it and stuff like that. And every time I'm there, I go, I go, hey, let's just now that we've seen Lemmy and we've seen Dio, I said, we're just going to go for a walk. I said, every time I go for a walk, I stumble across somebody else super famous, like right at the entrance of where Dio's grave is. There's Betty Davis. It's like a big angel. Um, but the the new one that I found. So when you're facing Dio's grave, uh if you walk to the right and you walk a little bit on this path, there's like an archway and you walk through the archway and, uh, and there's the, I saw the statue of these two angels together, huge statues. And I just like, wow, who, I wonder who that is. That's a pretty elaborate grave. And I walked towards it and it says Carrie Fisher. It's, it's Carrie Fisher and her mom together in one day. Debbie grave. Reynolds they, they and died. Carrie Fisher. They died within a day of each other and they're, and they're right near Dio. I'm like, that is amazing. Princess Leia is right over here near Dio. Those cemeteries crazy? are crazy. Yeah. Because there's only a few places in Hollywood. And like, if you got the money to go in the, like, yeah. everybody's there. Yeah. Like I saw Liza Minnelli's grave. Oh, it was wow. like, she's got a whole mausoleum. And you crazy. just go wandering through and you're like, wait, I know that name. I know that. And it's yep. not even... Like Mel Blanc, who did all the Looney Tunes voices, like I saw his grave, and it was just yeah. like you just start all wandering around and you bump into, yeah, like right across from Chris Cornell is Toto from The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> and it's right next to the to is it Marky Ramone? Oh yeah, with the guitar, the yeah yeah one of the Ramones yeah, yeah. is buried right next to Chris Cornell. Yeah, that's amazing. So it that's just those place. those cemeteries and it's I'm always the I've always been that person that I love walking through cemeteries like I don't look at it as a sad thing like I just love walking through it's always peaceful and reading yep. you know you can always tell a lot about somebody based on the headstone and stuff so I walk through cemeteries all the time yeah, that and that that one where Dio is the forest lawn is just it's amazing. For just that. ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, and you can literally you could just go for a walk and just be like, watch, we're gonna we're gonna spot a random person of history that we just didn't like. Oh my God, there's Frank L. Baum, the guy who wrote Wizard of Oz. Like, yeah, what? It's right here. You know? And that's where Michael Jackson is a building. You can't even go in the building. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's at he's at yeah. Forest Lawn and like. Yep. So anybody that's listening that if you've ever, if you've never been to LA or Hollywood, like you've got to make time to go to these, the Hollywood forever, which is in the middle of all the movie studios. Yeah. And then Forest Lawn is like this big sprawling cemetery. That's just amazing. And, and everybody's there and you just kind of yeah. wander around and. Yeah. It's incredible. Know, yeah. You know, in that cemetery, there's like three or four different churches. Like you just drive. It's like a huge park. You drive around. It's almost like Central Park. And there's just these little churches where, if you know, you have a ceremony there, you can do it. And one of the churches in there is an exact replica of the famous church in Boston, downtown Boston. There's like a famous like church, first church or something like that. I forget what it is. Well, there's but the old it's North a Church, that one. I don't know. I'm not sure which one it is. I need to look it up. But there's a church in Forest Lawn Cemetery that's a replica of the Boston Church. That's crazy. Like down to every beam and everything. I'm like, I heard that. I was like, that is crazy. Yeah, pretty yeah. wild. It. I talk, it's all connected. When I talked to Chris from the record company, he lives close to there. And like, 
mm. and goes walking there all the time. Like, yeah, by Hollywood beautiful. forever. And he said during COVID, that's what a lot of people were doing is they were walking through yeah. cemeteries because they wanted to get outside and get exercise, but didn't want yep. to see anybody. So I guess if you're yep. trying to avoid people, going for walks in the cemetery is probably a good place to go. Have you uh, been to the, the dime bag? Uh, I have. Out there? So uh, I, yeah. I had always wanted to go while Vinny was still alive. Yep. And but right before COVID, I, I went to Dallas with my now husband and I had never been to Dallas before. And he was like, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do two things. I want to go to, well, no, actually I wanted to do three things. I want to go to Dealey Plaza to see where JFK was assassinated. Oh yeah. Because my husband is in the military and he's quite the marksman. So I wanted to go with people that know about yeah. Bullet trajectory and all of that kind of stuff so that I could look. That's a great, that museum is fantastic. So I didn't get to go to the museum. I want to go back, but, but we've all yeah. seen the Zapruder film. Like we've all seen the famous footage of Dealey Plaza and the assassination. Oh, yeah. I couldn't believe how small it was. Cause for some reason I yeah. thought it was going to be so super big and it's not. The yeah. second thing I wanted to do was go and see Vinny and Dime because by the time I got out there, Vinny had passed as well. And then yeah. I also wanted to go find Dave Williams from Drowning Pool. Oh, yeah. Because I saw him, like, you know, when Drowning Pool hit, they, they were one of those AAF bands. Yeah. And I saw him on the OzFest just a couple of weeks before he passed. Yeah. And so I was like, all right, I want to go and find Dave Williams. So me and my now husband and a bunch of friends on motorcycles, we all went riding around and we found Dave Williams' grave. And then we went... And I navigated, like I had Googled the cemetery where Vinny and Dime are. And they were like, well, where in the cemetery is it? And I was like, I don't know. I, but I know what I know what Dime's grave looked like because I had seen pictures of it. So I was like, well, yeah. once we get to the cemetery, I'm sure we'll figure it out. And we pull into the cemetery and there's a bunch of us on Harleys and we're riding around and I see a group of people in black hoodies. And, and I was them. like, that's where we're going. <laughs> And yep. sure enough, we go over there and they hadn't put the iron fencing up yet. Oh, yeah. So like we were able to take pictures with the graves and we brought a bottle yeah. of crown with us. And as we were getting ready to leave, another group of people found their graves because of us. <laughs> because wow. like, I guess no one else in that cemetery should have yeah. people <laughs> looking like us visiting them. Yeah. And so as we were getting ready to leave, these other people came up and they were like, oh, yeah, we had a feeling this is where yep. their graves were because we saw you guys. That's amazing. Yeah. And Man, those guys then, were so those guys were so great. Like talk about talk about setting the tone of how to of how to treat opening bands. And, you know, I've been on, you know, like I said, being like the hired guy, I've been I've been on tours where you're opening for bigger bands all the time. And I've been on I've been in bands that are the band itself is pretty big, but you're opening for a bigger band and you're told like, yeah, don't, you don't go down those hallways Any any hallways with black curtains. You don't go down there. You don't go down there. Like you're told like, this is such and such as area. These are your hallways and man, Pantera, like I've been in their dressing rooms and on the Ozfest or whatever. And they'll have like 30 kids from the second stage in their dressing room, pouring those shots. Everybody like, They'll, they'll see a, a guy out in the hallway. Hey man, come on in, come on in. Like they set the tone for like how to, how to, uh, 
you know, treat opening bands. And they were just so cool to everybody on the road. I interviewed Dave Grohl a few years ago at Fenway on the tour where he broke his leg when he had the throne. Yeah. So first of all, I'm nerding out because I'm in the Red Sox dressing, like the locker room, because that's the Foo Fighters dressing room. And Dave was on like the little scooter and I'm sitting there. It was me, Dave, Pat Smear and Taylor Hawkins. And we were talking about Pantera and Dave Grohl said, I learned how to be a rock star from those guys. That they were nice to everybody, that they never had an ego, that they made friends with everybody. He he goes, when when bands tour with us in the Foo Fighters, I always just go storming into their dressing rooms with a bottle of something and I always want to have a drink and sit around and tell stories. And everybody that tours with the Foo Fighters talks about how Dave Grohl is like that, but he yep. says, no, I learned that from Vinny and Dime. You want to, you want to hear the craziest story ever as far as them being like just amazing to opening bands. So uh, it's, it's on the Ozfest, right? And it's just like a week into the tour. And I think we had a day off and I'm in, I'm in some restaurant that's like in the lobby of a hotel and Rex from Pantera walks in and I hadn't met him. I mean, I met him when I was like a kid seeing some Pantera shows at the, I saw him at the channel when I was a kid once and I met him all, but you know, whatever. And, uh, so I'm in this like restaurant, Rex walks in and he goes, Hey man, he goes, he goes, you played for Tommy Lee, huh? I go, yeah. And, uh, and now I played Spectre basses, you know, and he played Spectre basses. And, uh, when I was a kid, like, always wanted a specter base but couldn't afford one and then when i got older i saved up all my money i was able to buy one and when i was a kid i used to like draw them on my notebooks in school you know it was like the wannabe specter base player guy so he walks in he's like hey man i was checking out your bases it's pretty cool yeah you you know you got some five strings they're cool and now he he had his normal specter bases but he he had this one certain specter base that was shaped like a gibson thunderbird and it was his signature model and he was the first person that in the world to ever have a, a Spectre signature model. And I knew that this was the first one, you know, and it was a big thing. So he goes, Hey man, uh, I want to ask you, what do, what do you think of my signature model? And I was like, well, I was like, first of all, the fact that you have a Spectre signature model at all is unbelievable. I was like, I used to draw these things on my notebook when I was a kid. I go, the fact that you have your own signature model is insane. That's like incredible. And he goes, what do you think of the shape? He goes, you like the shape? I go, that's amazing. You've got your own shape. It's unique, you know? And he goes, oh, that's cool. Now, I've known him for maybe 10 minutes. We're just talking bases, right? And he says to me, oh, that's cool. I'm glad you like it. He goes, uh, he goes I'll tell you what. He goes, they, they just made two more for me, and they're being painted right now. And he goes, when those two get shipped out to me, he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you that, that prototype, the first one. I was like, what? Like I heard him clear as day, but I but I literally went the fuck you just say. <laughs> <laughs> heard him clear as day. He goes he goes when the two new ones arrive, I'm going to give you the prototype. I was like, oh wow, thanks. Like it was so unbelievable. I was like, did I mishear that? Like what was that? So a couple weeks later into the Ozfest, right? I'm in the catering, and now you know catering is full of all bands. There's, bands of all walks of life some of the second stage bands some of the guys in tool like everybody's just sitting there eating and uh, something goes off over the radio all, all the pantera crew guys radio i hear my name uh anybody got eyes on marty uh tommy lee's bass player and somebody goes 
yep, he's up here uh, in catering, you know, probably with the mashed potatoes or something. <laughs> and he goes, send him down to uh, send him down to the Pantera room. Rex wants to see him. And I was like, all right. And so all the people in catering heard this, you know, and they're all looking at me like, what? Like getting somebody made a comment like you're getting summoned to the Pantera room. Like, what is that all about? You know, called to the principal's office. So this this was in um, I think it was in Holmdale, New Jersey, or one of those shows that's really close to New York City. So I go down and Pantera's dressing room is like uh, in this long hallway and the whole hallway was just filled with all of the the New York City metal music industry people you know concrete marketing and like all the everybody that you know from the whole scene everybody and the hallway was filled with people just chattering and anytime the pantera dressing room opened you know everybody be peeking in like oh what's going on in there and uh so i just walked down the hallway like somebody you know and uh i knock on pantera's dressing room door and uh uh Door opens up and their security guy, Crusher. Yes, his name was Crusher. The <laughs> security guy's name was Crusher. I think it's actually on his birth certificate. Uh, I, he opens the door and he goes, oh, and he goes, Rex, Marty's here. And he goes, he'll be right out. And he shuts the door again, you know. So I'm just standing in front of the door. And the whole hallway is filled with probably 20 people just all chattering, blah, blah, you know. All of a sudden, the door swings open really hard like it hits the wall. He's probably doing it to be dramatic. He swings the door open. He's got this bass in his hand and he shoves it in my face and says, Merry fucking Christmas. Get your own goddamn case. <laughs> and he hands me this bass without the case. I was like, oh, my God. Now the, now the hallway full of people of all these friends of mine that I know that work in the industry, the whole hallway just went silent. Like, And he gives me the bass. And I can't remember who it was, but somebody broke the silence and just went, no fucking way <laughs> and then and then like everybody's like he just gave you that like what so so i i'm gonna bring it to my bus and i'm i'm walking through catering and you, you don't usually see instruments in catering so i'm right. walking through catering with one of rex's bases the one he's been playing on stage for the past two weeks on ozfest and every, all the bands are sitting there eating they're like he did not just give you that like i go <laughs> And so I put it on the bus. It, it lived in my bunk for like the whole rest of the tour. And I, I like, slept I, I with it, it and spooned with it every night. I, I well, when I slept, I would put it in the back. We had Tommy Lee's buses always had a recording studio. The back lounge was a recording studio, so I would put it in the back there. But it, during the day, it would go, and I'd tuck it in. And uh, so anyway, on the back of the headstock, it's handwritten by Stuart Spector, and it says, um, "It says Stuart Spector," and it says Rex. Uh, Rex, uh, prototype serial number zero zero one. <laughs> it's the first Rex Pantera signature model ever, and he gave me the prototype. Please yeah. tell me you still have it. Absolutely, I will never get rid of that. Yeah, because you got a bunch of stuff hanging on the walls behind you. I'm like, yes. please tell um, me that you didn't get rid of it. No, but. This is this is a really interesting story. Being a being a East Coast uh, Boston person, this base right here, right? I've owned I've owned this base for probably like thirty years, maybe. I bought it in the mid nineties. I played this base on every Kilgore show I ever did. The entire Ozfest. After Ozfest, we did an entire North American tour with Slayer, 
Then we went to Europe and we played with, we did a tour with Fear Factory. So anyway, I, Ozfest, well, I've owned the space almost 30 years, right? Guess what? This base is Pat Badger's Spectre bass from the Get the Funk Out video. When the song, when the video starts and he's playing that intro, yeah, that's the bass. I bought it off him in like 1996 or something like that. And so he he owned it probably like only six or seven years, and I've owned it probably twenty five or thirty, oh actually probably thirty God. years. God. So any picture you see of me as a young kid playing on the Ozfest or with Kilgore, it's it's the Pat Badger bass from the Get the Funk Out music video. <laughs> That's so crazy. Isn't that random? Crazy, right? And now those guys are like back in such a huge way too. They yeah, release that I love huge it, record. Man. People losing their it. minds about those Nuno solos and stuff. It's yeah. insane. Yep. It's insane. It's uh, so so cool to see them back. Yeah. Uh, I I I have a I have a kind of a funny extreme story. I was uh I let Nuno borrow a bass, a five strings Spectre bass. It's on the road with Daughter right now. But uh like like 5 years ago I let him borrow this and uh and I believe he, it's on that new um, uh, Extreme album. I think he used it on a track or because there was one song that needed five string or something. He needed a five string bass. So I let him borrow. It was like five years ago. And uh, about maybe like seven months ago or something like that, I needed that bass back because I needed a five string for some Daughtry stuff. And uh and I called him up. I said, Hey, I said, you still have that bass, right? It's like, can I stop by and grab it? I go, I go yeah. And, uh, he's usually just at home working on music up at his studio. You know, he doesn't live too far. And so I go over there and I pull up and Kevin, the bass player for, uh, uh, extreme is sitting on the front steps of oh, his no, house. The, the drummer. Kevin's. A... Yeah. Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Ke yeah. Kevin, uh, he's sitting on the front steps of the house. And it's unusual to see these guys out here because, like, Nuno's the only one that lives out here. And right. I pull up and I was like, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, we're we're here shooting a couple music videos. And I go, oh, I go, the album's finally coming out? That's all. Because, you know, they they paused it. It was supposed to come out and then COVID hit. And they, I was like, that's great. So I go upstairs to, to grab the bass from Nuno. And Kevin walks up with me. And all of Extreme is in the kitchen. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> this is weird. I'm getting the bass from him. And, and we, we talked about that bass. Cause so I was going like, to, I was going to ask, did, did you, does Pat, Pat know you still have that bass? Yeah. Yeah. And he, he always cracks jokes. Yeah. Have you ever sell it? You know, it's like, I mean, I'm never selling it. I, I owned it. So I've had it like 30 years, you know? And, uh, but anyway, it was just funny to walk up and they were all like in the kitchen. I was like, this is weird. What are you guys all doing here? You know, they were, they were shooting two music videos apparently. So I think they did a couple back to back videos. So I talked anyway, to yeah, the DeLeo brothers that, about, about instruments and how once there's a memory associated with them, whether it be that you wrote a song on it or a tour oh, or something yeah. like they're impossible to get rid of. Yeah. And the longer course. your career, the more of these things you acquire to the point where you're like, what am I going to do with all of this stuff? Yes. I'm selling a bunch of stuff actually, but the, the sentimental stuff is going to stay with me, but I'm, I am going to be selling some random stuff that I just, I'd have to, as you can see, I have so many random ones. Yeah, um, but yeah, I knew I knew you'd get a kick out of that because 
most people don't know that 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 specter bass that I played with Kilgore forever is actually the get the funk out bass. That's freaking <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, and I love it. I adore it. So what? Um, so what's going on with Daughtry now? What are you guys planning on doing for? You're going on the acoustic um, tour. Yeah, there's an acoustic tour coming up. Um, that's pretty much all of August and all of September. Um, so it's two months of an acoustic tour. But what's kind of cool is like about about once every two weeks thrown in there is an electric show, like a random festival or something. So we'll be on the road doing the acoustic tour, but then probably shoot off and do like a big festival or something. I know we're doing like Rocklahoma, maybe that's later in the year, but like we have some other like Aftershock, Rocklahoma, a bunch of things coming up. Isn't and, Aaron uh, Jones playing that acoustic tour with you guys? Yeah. He's yeah. great. Yeah, he's awesome. He, he he was our opening act in the UK in March. We just did a, a two week uh, UK tour and uh, and he was on there. Yeah, he's, he's great. Him and his band are awesome. Yeah. yeah. Looking forward to that. And yeah, there's just there's new music being uh, written right now. Daughtry Chris is working on songs right now and heard some new stuff. I played on a, a new track that's probably coming out sometime. I'm not sure when. I'm not sure what the plan is, but it's it's uh it's pretty awesome it's it's exciting time because it's like it's a little heavier direction and and uh just he's doing really what he wants to and it's just awesome everybody's excited and uh and yeah it's looking like it's going to be a super busy next year but this year it's mainly that that acoustic tour and i leave uh i leave on tuesday actually for a week in canada we have three shows through the week in Canada, Niagara Falls, and uh, a couple of festival, and yeah, it's gonna be fun. Do you get home often to see the fam? I, I mean, I always go back for the holidays, and then usually sometime in the middle of the year, if there's like, I always try to plan it. Like, oh, I'm playing. Uh, there's been so many times that I've played like Mohegan Sun, or Foxwoods, like, or something. One time, with yeah, with um with uh with lita ford you know you play those places like once a year one year we played mohegan sun my family came to the show and i went home with them and the next day was mother's day so i just stayed you know and then another trip uh i think we played mohegan sun and like five days later was thanksgiving so i just stayed then you know like you try to so I, i go back for the holiday like christmas holidays and then then I just try to connect the dots with, with touring stuff, you know, visit family. If I'm going to be in the area, I'm like, Ooh, I got a few days. I'll stay up here. So yeah. When try to get back whenever I can. When Tommy posts pictures of his penis on social media, do you text him? <laughs> I, don't. <laughs> I don't. It's a lost cause. You can't control. You can't control his penis. It's got a, in fact, I think it posted it on its own. I think it actually has its own account. And yeah. Well, his book is written partially by his penis. I believe it is. Yeah. Like it has its own font and actually tells <laughs> stories. If you haven't read, I'm not talking about Molly Cruz's book. I'm talking about Tommy Lee's book. Tommy yeah. Lee's book. Tommy tells a story. Then whoever the story is about tells their version of the oh, story. Oh, yeah, their version of it. Yeah, And yeah. then Tommy Lee's penis tells its version of the story. <laughs> Same story. In three different Perfect. fonts. It's really, really funny. Perfect. Yeah. That's great. You just never know <laughs> what's going to happen with that. You never know, yep. That's well, funny. 
I'm glad that we got a chance to catch up and and yeah. hang out. And uh, if you're going to be back in New England, maybe around the holidays, maybe you and I can get together and grab some dinner or something. That would yeah. be awesome. We got to. That'd be awesome. Now that Absolutely. now that COVID is kind of passed and people yep. are traveling and like I was able to see you in Vegas, which I end up in Vegas at least a couple times a year for work. Oh, yeah. More often than L.A. now, but every once in a while yep. I end up in L.A. But the Vegas trips are fun, like get in and out in like three or four days, anything longer than yep. that. Yeah, that was a random uh, random thing. I didn't think I'd see you. And it was like a, we the Daughtry played like a radio convention. And, yeah. And, uh, there you were. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, it's so weird. And I was like, you got to go well, on we, the podcast. And you were like, okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's funny is, you know, if anybody else is like, hey, do you want to do a podcast or, you know, it's like, sure. And they think like, OK, like what what what, what should I talk about? What could, what could I talk about on this one? But with you, it was like, are you kidding me? Like we could probably go for four hours talking oh about local local New England music. Oh, my God. Well, you mentioned Literally, the go, channel I and I was like, oh, my God, like yeah, legendary channel. music place, legendary um, music venue in Boston that. Was like over the Speaking harbor. That you know, I how I mentioned Pantera at the channel. Um, I saw Pantera at the channel, and it was on a Sunday afternoon. They used to. I was a, a kid, teenager, and they used to do these shows on Sundays for for all ages or for younger kids because the channel was twenty one and up. Yeah, it's the on, only place on most, I ever. Shows. It when I was in college before I was twenty one, the channel's the only place that would let me in while I was underage. Yeah. Because they always let the girls and, in. And so they had these things on Sundays and they were called metal matinees. So I still have the ticket. It's a paper ticket from Strawberries Records and Tapes. And it's a paper receipt and it's handwritten Pantera. Um, but it was actually an Exodus show. And it was called Mat Metal Matinee. And on these metal matinees, the doors would open at 11 a.m. And the first band would go on at noon. So we drive down there at like 10 a.m. on a Sunday. The doors opened at 11. Me and my friends got in there. Pantera was in a beat-up old RV. And Pantera went on at noon. And then it was Suicidal Tendencies and Exodus Headline. And Pantera went on at noon. And knowing <laughs> and what Cowboys. you know now about Pantera, there's no way they had gone to bed yet playing that show. No. Absolutely There's not. There's no Colin. way they went to bed. Yep. It's so sad because yeah. so many of those old great venues are just gone. Oh, it's a bummer. I yeah. lived in those venues when oh. I was a kid. The 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 old living room in Providence, Rhode yes. Island. Yes. During my high school years, from ninth grade to twelve twelfth grade, those four years, I was at every show during the week. I mean, I mean, like three, four nights a week. I saw a band. I saw Guns N' Roses on the Appetite for Destruction tour in that club. Uh, two weeks after that Pantera show at the Channel, Pantera headlined the living room, and there was probably eighty people tops in there. The Cowboys from Hell tour. Uh, so many bands I saw that. So, and I was just like probably too young to be in there i was like 15 or something or whatever but. it's so funny because we're telling these stories now like one of my professors in college my english professor saw all the bands he went to woodstock the original one wow you know like saw zeppelin at the garden like was just that guy that saw all the yeah. shows and after class i used to like 
talk music with him because he knew how much I love music. And I would just sit there and listen to him talk about all, like he was at the show in Connecticut when Jim Morrison whipped his dick out yep. and got arrested. Like he was at that show. <laughs> yeah. This guy was, oh was like at God. every show. But for this wow. new generation of music fans, these shows we're talking about in the 90s and the That's, 80s they, and 90s. like Yeah, they, they look at it that way, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I know. <laughs> It's amazing oh. we made it out alive, dude. It's nice. It's nice. You look healthy. You look good. We made it. <laughs> we made trying. it out of that crazy period and survived. We made it. We survived. Like how many black tooth shots can you do and <laughs> and still survive? And it's like, yeah. <laughs> I still keep Pedialyte in the fridge because of Diamond Vinny telling me to do that. You did it. You mm-hmm. did it. You survived. Yeah, exactly. Well, hopefully I'll get to see you on this acoustic tour. And if not, I can't yeah. wait to hear this new we, Dodger uh, stuff. Unfortunately, we're not playing in Boston the close. Oh, no. Well, it's like we play Vermont and Foxwoods in Connecticut. There's yeah. like no, no, no Boston. Yeah, I might Island, come but... to the Foxwoods show. Yeah. Hit so, me up. All right. I will. Sweet. I think it's August 26th. I yeah. think it's up on the, uh, the concert calendar at mistresscarry.com. Yes. Concert calendar. It's up there. All right. So they're all up there. Uh, after this, after we close this Zoom, I'm going to get on mistresscarry.com and see what this website's all about. Oh, there's all kinds of stuff. All the episodes of the <laughs> podcast are there. Um, the video cool. shows up there. You can shop in the online store. Cool. The only thing that I have to really do with the website, and I've been totally slacking, and you can appreciate this, mm-hmm. is I have to take the time to really get my photo archives up there. Because there's oh, just yeah, that'd be cool. so many pictures. and so Oh, you should definitely do that. There's just so much stuff. And I've got pictures. When I had to move out of the AAF like, offices and stuff, Like I found all of these old pictures where the only copy I have is a, an actual physical photo yeah. that needs to be scanned and digitized. But did you get double? Did you get double prints? At oh Photomat? my god! Do you still got the negatives? <laughs> um, but but I I do have to spend Amazing. some serious time with the photo galleries. That's the only part of mistresscarry.com that I really need to yeah. work on. But the but the concert calendar it's concerts and events from all around New England. Because I'm on the radio all around New England now and across the country. Wow, now. yeah. So, you're all, so the concert calendar. Yeah. Worldwide. Exactly. That's awesome. So, yeah, go to mistresscarry.com. It's all there. And I'll have all of your links um, in the show notes of this episode so people can find you easily. Cool. Awesome. Well, I will catch up with you very soon. I appreciate you coming and hanging with me. Yeah, thanks for the invite to chat. I knew we could just chat. How long do we go? We probably went hours. A couple hours. I knew it. Yeah, I could I did go too. forever. Yeah. I did too. Well, this we'll like do said, it again. We'll go back and listen to this one and fill in all the gaps of the stuff we didn't talk about, and then we'll do it again. Yes. Maybe yes. next time <laughs> when you get some time off or you're or you're on the East Coast, you can come hang with me in MCHQ and we can do it in person. Yeah, let's do another in person one. We'll talk right. about reflecting back on the old New England music scene. Craziness. Could go on forever. I know. Well, now they're bringing back the metal and hardcore fest at the Palladium. They're bringing it back. Oh, my God. Wow. It's happening in September. They're bringing it back the wow. first time in five years. So there's there's a lot going on in New England with hard rock and heavy metal and hardcore music. It's 
you can next feel... thing you know local bazooka will be back. oh my gosh <laughs> that's where i yes. got to sing walk with dime sharing a microphone one of the highlights of my whole radio career yes that picture is up for I'm sure go find it yeah all right honey i'll talk to you soon all right good chat let's do it again soon there he is, the one and only Marty O'Brien. And yeah, we're going to have to do it again because we left out a lot of stuff. You can catch Marty O'Brien out on the road with Daughtry. Get the details on their New England shows. Just go to the concert calendar at mistresscarry.com. And if you want to check out Marty's discography, all of the different projects he's recorded with over the years, just go to his official website, which is linked in the show notes of this episode. You'll also find all of Marty's social media links, all of Daughtry's links, and all of my links as well. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, each weekday, you get the sit rep. All of your rock news, entertainment updates, and music headlines, and it's all in five minutes. And besides, you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. You can catch me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 on my official Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room, and you can always find me on the radio. Get the details on all that and more at mistresscarry.com. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.